this morning, we're continuing our Kingdom Come series. It's where we're listening in closely to Matthew's gospel, and, uh, and we're really asking, what does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus? I'm going to invite my friend Janelle to come, and she's going to read the text for us, Matthew chapter 19 this morning. And as she comes, I'm going to invite you simply to listen to the text. I mean, you can follow along if you want to as well, of course. But I also want you to pay attention to the various kingdom issues, those elements that each person or each group of people, the thing that would stand in the way of their following Jesus as their saving king. So let's listen in together. Good morning. So we're reading from Matthew 19, if you want to meet me there. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are Enoch's because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, 
you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. a lot in there. Do we have an hour? Is that right? Um, (laughs) I'm not going to touch on everything this morning. So much to talk about there. But you know, uh, it was was 10 years ago, somewhere roughly around there. uh, I was driving home from work one afternoon. Working here, we were living in Batch, and so I was taking Highway 5 North. I was driving my little white uh, Ford Ranger. It was a great little vehicle in 94. And um, I was just coming up to that intersection where the Sun River's uh, turn is. So I was going north. I was doing a speed limit, which is highway speed, 90 kilometers an hour in the right-hand lane. And he was kind of rutted out in those lanes as well from the big trucks. Well, as I was driving, I was about 200 meters from the intersection, and I saw a big pickup truck begin to make a left turn in front of me. And I began to tap my brakes because, you know, defensive driving is always a good idea, right? Um, I didn't know how quickly he was going to accelerate. And, you know, uh, I began to slow the vehicle, but then I had a moment of panic. It wasn't just a truck. It was a truck pulling a very long trailer. So not only was it accelerating slowly, it had a 20-plus foot long trailer it was pulling behind. Needless to say, I was about to collide with the trailer at highway speed, unless I did something drastic right away. Fortunately, the truck that I was driving was designed with ABS brakes, you know, anti-lock braking system. The point of this is if you slam on the brakes, it doesn't lock up. It, it, it slowly lets it go so that you don't end up in a slide. This is one of those life or death moments, and so slam on the brakes, I did. Now, unfortunately, as I quickly found out, the ABS on my truck was not working. The tires locked up firmly. And those ruts I mentioned, those big ones uh, from the big trucks, the rear end of my vehicle began to bounce around the ruts as it was locked up. And I was skidding from side to side. So this was a little more of a rodeo than I was hoping for that day. Um, And it was definitely a grace of God kind of moment that I didn't end up going sideways and rolling or whatever it could have been. Somehow I managed to keep more or less in my lane. There was vehicles beside me as well, and I was just able to hold it together. But that's not how the truck was designed to work. The ABS was designed to keep me in control and not skidding, but it wasn't functioning properly. This, Jesus says, is the answer to the question the Pharisees have in our text. And you're thinking, what? I thought they were talking about divorce and and that kind of thing. Well, yes, on one level they are. (laughs) But on another level, he's doing something much bigger and more remarkable. If we pay attention this morning, we'll see how God shows us what our hearts were originally made for, how they were meant to function, and how they no longer function that way. Throughout this text, we'll see the effect of that heart issue on various kingdom issues, things that could stand in the way of us embracing the life of the kingdom. 
and we'll see the way forward. Let's just pray briefly as we start. God, we thank you for this text, this challenging text, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to respond to all that you want to teach us through this. In Christ's name, amen. So throughout Matthew's gospel, we've seen that Jesus is locked in conflict with the Pharisees. These are religious leaders, and um, they've basically captured the imagination of the, of the sort of um, most of the people are listening to the Pharisees and how they teach about things around them. They kind of have control of the religious landscape, you might say, at this moment. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he begins to mess with that sense of control that they have. So they come to Jesus to, it says, test him. Listen again to their question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Uh, they figured that if Moses gave legislation about this, divorce must just be totally fine. Jesus answers by pointing them back to God's original design for humanity. He says, haven't you read? Like, you guys, you guys assume to be the religious teachers, but you don't even know what, like, the first two chapters of the Bible are teaching. Let, rem let me remind you. So he quotes from Genesis chapter 1. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, now quoting from Genesis 2, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, Jesus gives his kind of conclusion on the matter. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Just as my truck was designed not to skid and have an accident, so marriage was made and our hearts were made that we wouldn't want to split things up and reassemble them with someone new just because we felt like it. That's not the design. In their world, and in ours to some extent too, this ending and reassembling, it's an all too common reality. And Jesus is clear, that that's really not God's design. But look how the Pharisees respond. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and then send her away? Jesus sees right through their loophole seeking. He points out the way that they're selectively reading the Bible and how they're trying to use it for their own selfish gain. No, Jesus says, Moses permitted. You see, that's, that's a shift in words. They said Moses commanded. No, he didn't. Moses permitted. Those things matter. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard meaning your hearts aren't working properly. You are not interested in living under God's design for humanity. So God, for a time, made accommodation for that stubborn heart. But, Jesus says, it was not that way from the beginning. Your hearts were hard. That's the central issue of this text. Like my ABS on the trucks that day, their hearts weren't working right. And that's the story of humanity, actually. So Jesus points to God's intent how things are made to be. But we need to see this. Jesus not only teaches us some important things about relationship, we'll talk about that in a moment. He's doing something much bigger too. Here's how scholar N.T. Wright puts it. Jesus is claiming that with his own work, God's whole plan has shifted a stage forwards. He is moving the story of God and his people into a new mode. God is now in the business of making people new from the in side. So Jesus' whole ministry is intended to address not just the exterior, 
Let's start at the heart, the interior. He will so change us that we will want to function as we were made to function, not looking for loopholes or easy ways out of our commitments. Wright continues, Jesus says that Moses gave the commands he did because Israel's hearts were hard. Jesus seems to be claiming that through his work, the root problem of the human race, the wickedness of the human heart, will itself be dealt with. And it is. That's Jesus' mission, to remake and recreate us from the inside out. In short, the problem for the Pharisees, and for many of us too, is that our hearts don't work as they were designed to. Like, Why would the Pharisees even want to simply send their wives away? It's a hardness of heart issue, it's a stubbornness issue. Jesus' whole work, his death and resurrection, are to remake us. His work for us, if we're open to it, can restructure our hearts so that we will want to live out God's design. Now, that doesn't mean that God's design is easy. That doesn't mean that once we say yes to Jesus, somehow the temptations to live against God's design are lessened. I actually think they increase. We begin swimming against the tides of our own human nature, of the pressure of our enemy and the world that we live in, and we find out that that tide will, be, will require us to put incredible effort into following Jesus. Notice I didn't say earning, I said effort. There is effort in the Christian life, and it's a lot. So following Jesus will call us to courageously choose God's ways, even and especially when they're hard, over the other ways that our heart's impulses might naturally lead us. But the joy is this. When we submit to Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit who makes our hearts new and who is a resource, a presence to help us to obey all that Jesus has commanded. We also have the resource of the church. We have each other to encourage us along, to help to encourage us to live out the new heart, new creation nature that God has given us through Christ. So now let's just take a few moments because I think it's important that we do talk about what Jesus says here about marriage and divorce for just a few moments. First, Jesus restores the sacred, God-given beauty and seriousness to marriage. He says a wife can't just be divorced for any and every reason. That would make it possible for a man just to simply dump his wife and marry someone new as though it was no big deal. No? Jesus says it's a very big deal. Here's a few key things we need to take from this. Number one, Jesus protects women from being um, dumped in a, and, uh, for someone new because of how destructive it would be. Part, part of the reason is, A, he's just reflecting what God made marriage to be, but B, he's protecting people. It would be especially um, devastating for a woman in a culture, a patriarchal culture like that, it'd be financially and socially ruinous to her. So the hard-hearted Pharisees, they are willing to see women's lives ruined by men who simply want a new wife. And Jesus says to that, no. Two, it brings a very clear line to these men who might think they can get away with this. It says only in the case of sexual immorality. You can't just send her away for any old reason. But that one, it does qualify. Why? Because it's actually stepping over the boundary of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus says that is a legitimate reason for divorce. 
Um, it's not a necessary or required outcome necessarily. Some relationships can be repaired with serious confession, repentance, and hard restorative work. It happens. It really does. But some relationships are either too damaged or the people aren't willing to work on them. And Jesus makes allowance, painful as it is, in that sort of situation. Truth is, I really wrestled with how to talk about this um, because this isn't just an issue. The end of a relationship, a marriage in particular, that affects real people. And every time I've seen that happen, uh, it's just been like a nuclear, it's just been devastating to everyone involved. Like no one walks away unscathed. And so I really wrestled with how to speak about this. I know it's incredibly painful. And so if you've been through that kind of pain or your family has, just hear loud and clear that there is hope and healing in Jesus. Second thing, we have to know what this text doesn't mean. Jesus is addressing people who are looking for an easy way out of their commitments. He's clear that self-centered motives are never okay as a reason to end a marriage. But he's also not addressing every possible circumstance. How do we know that? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually talks about a different one. He says if, a, if there's a couple and one of them becomes a believer, they need to stay married to their unbelieving spouse as a witness to the gospel to them. But Paul says if that unbelieving spouse wants to leave, if they want to end the marriage, the believing spouse says, he says you can let them go. And, and Paul means by that that they're no longer a marriage commitment there. So Jesus doesn't cover off every potential circumstance where divorce might be legitimate, and Paul shows us that. But what Jesus does is he states God's standard. And for the Pharisees, he's revealing the hardness of their hearts. He's protecting women from misuse, from being ditched and desolate in a male-dominated and often misogynistic culture of the first century. Here's why I mention this. In the case of violence in a relationship, this text should never be used to say that someone just needs to keep staying in that home and in that unhealthy relationship if there is domestic violence going on there. Sometimes this text has been used in that way, and I just want to say that's wrong. It's not what it's addressing here. In a case that something like that is happening, the victim needs to contact the proper authorities to call the RCMP to ensure that there's safety for everyone involved. And if that's you, if you need that kind of support, you can call Harry or Jill or myself and we'll help connect you with the right kind of counselors and the appropriate services. So if there's domestic violence in a home, that situation needs to be addressed immediately and we can help you begin that process. Now, we need to see that this text really does tell us God's design for marriage, but I don't think it should be used to convince people to stay in a marriage where someone is being uh, abused repeatedly and there's no change to that. The truth is Jesus just doesn't address that kind of situation directly here. Jesus says divorce is never God's design, but in the case that there is just a painful reality like that, um, I guess I would want to say this. Whatever you've gone through, wherever you're at right now, there is a God who loves and who cares and who's done what everything necessary to bring forgiveness and healing. You know, for those who've dropped their commitments, there's forgiveness for you. For those who have been dropped, there is healing and grace for you as well. But hear this, it's not cheap grace either. 
It's not, oh, it doesn't matter if I've blown it on my commitments. That's not what Jesus is offering us. It doesn't mean that there won't be painful consequences, but there is a fresh start and new life for everyone who says, yes, Jesus, come and be the center of this situation. That was the really heavy part. And now let's just talk about some of the pieces that are maybe on the more positive end for us as well this morning. What can we take from this practically? First, Jesus elevates marriage above what his culture says to its intended um, God-honoring place. But when he does, look at how the disciples respond. They say, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, like that kind of commitment, it's better not to marry. My initial response to this was, what a ridiculous thing to say. But then I thought about the disciples for a second. All they had been taught was the things that the Pharisees were teaching, where you could get out of a marriage quite easily, actually. And they're going, wow, that just sounds way too hard. So Jesus, his teaching seems bizarrely impractical to, the, to, to his hearers, to his disciples. And it actually, I recognize that it probably still sounds that way to many ears today as well. Jesus ups the ante of commitment. Now, to be clear, most people who, who would say that they're not followers of Jesus, um, most of them that I know, they highly value the idea of a lifelong partnership with one person. Most I know still long for that one person they can share their life with. But this kind of commitment that Jesus describes here, it requires a couple to go through seasons where there might not be that sense of happiness there. And when that happiness becomes our ultimate, then, like the Pharisees here, the impulse of our heart would be to devalue marriage to a place somewhere below our personal happiness. So love, quote-unquote, in this case, is actually this. You make me feel good, so I'll stay with you as long as you do. But is that really love? So Jesus elevates marriage to its sacred, God-given place. The question is, do you see marriage with that same sacredness that Jesus presents here? This means seeking, if we're to live this out, it means seeking the best for the other, for your spouse, even in times of unhappiness, for that's real love. It means doing everything necessary to cherish and fight for that to become one sort of functioning. So if you're here and you're married, hear this word as a hearty encouragement. Um, maybe for some of you, the kids, the job, the bill payments, maybe these things feel like they're just taking up all of your energy and your time. And maybe it can feel like you and your spouse are just like ships passing in the night right now. We need to hear Jesus' strong affirmation of what God intends marriage to be. It's a lifetime commitment of one man and one woman joined as though they are one person, no longer two. This, Jesus says, is actually a work of God. So my encouragement is this, just let Jesus view his view of your marriage sink in again. Marvel in it. Celebrate what God has given you. But there's a, there's a challenge here when we do. See, maybe the kids, the job, the bill payment, or the fishing, the hunting, the hobbies, whatever it might be for you, maybe these things have become a priority over your spouse, over your marriage. Augustine of Hippo was a fifth century uh, pastor and theologian and he defines sin as disordered love. It means loving the right things too little and the wrong things too much. 
See, if I love anything more than I love God, if I put anything above him as my first and best, I'm breaking the first command where God says, you shall love the Lord your God and have no other gods before me. You must not love anything more than you love me, God says. So that's the first relationship, rightly ordered. But what's the second? To our point this morning, if you're married, the second relationship is your spouse. There is no human relationship that has priority over that person for your life. The two become one, Jesus says. So if you love your job more than your spouse, or love your kids more than your spouse, that will lead to disintegration. The very best thing you can do for your kids is to love God as your first and best and then love your spouse more than you love your kids. That will bring warmth and security to your home. It will provide the most stable environment to raise your kids in. Your kids will see you parenting as a unit and no, I'm not gonna get away with dividing my parents on this. I, I think... Uh, Grant and Brenda Del Biggio for that insight. And loving God first will mean that your spouse has that security of knowing that your aim is to be faithful to God and faithful to them because that's what it means uh, for your marriage. So the very best thing you can do for your spouse is to love God more than you love them. Best thing you can do for your spouse. So here's the challenge. If you're married, uh, is someone or something standing in the way of you loving your spouse as that number two position? Have you let something else into that place? If, you're, if you have, I can guarantee you, your, your spouse feels it. They know it. They might not know how to say it or to put their finger on it, but they know it. But you can change that today. You can. We can ask God to enable us to order things rightly. That's what repentance means. It means shifting from one way of being to another, and you can do that today. So can I suggest, maybe just simply, this week, look for ways to give attention to your spouse that shows that there's no relationship, no activity, no job, no hobby that's above him or her. Your whole home will feel it in a positive way. And you can choose that today. But Jesus says more. Yes, he elevates marriage above his culture and ours. He also elevates singleness way above both cultures. Jesus tells us that singleness is a valid, God-honoring status in life. He doesn't talk about singleness as though it's a problem to be solved, although many Christian books will tell you that it is. Jesus doesn't, thank God for that. In fact, he says some people are going to actually renounce marriage. That means they're going to be single and celibate for the rest of their life simply for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself did that. He was single. His mission required it. He elevates the status of singleness. But back to the idea of disordered love, too often, even in the church subculture and in our broader culture too, the desire for that significant relationship, that romance, can actually and often take first place over God. Some people call this apocalyptic romance, this idea that the one thing that you need in your life to be fulfilled is that other person. It becomes an ultimate. In that kind of culture, actually, singleness is greatly devalued. It's like a problem that has to be fixed. Jesus says, no, it isn't. And he speaks in a way that enables us to properly order our relationships. In fact, the way Jesus values singleness challenges that view that elevates relationship status as a way of happiness seeking above God. 
Jesus' view of singleness frees us from seeing romance as the only way to have a full life. It's not, Jesus tells us. It's not. So really, throughout this whole chapter, Jesus is challenging several kingdom issues. Those things that would keep us from following Jesus as first and best. Let me just recap quickly. The Pharisees, their kingdom issue was the desire to control the religious landscape through their self-centered reading of the Bible. They were placing their religious views and their desire to control others and the control they got from that above God himself. So that when someone brought new information, said, actually, guys, just read Genesis, they would reject it. They would selectively read the Bible so as to keep control for themselves. So when Jesus points to God's intention for marriage, they look for loopholes. This is a challenge to us as well. Like, am I willing to let Jesus challenge and change my ideologies and, and my sense of desire for control? Am I willing to let him check my blind spots and offer uh, just a new way of seeing things? So Jesus challenges how we see our relationships, how we order our loves. And we see this challenge continue in the next scene. For Jesus' disciples, it was power and influence over others. That was their kingdom issue. See, they're, they're, they're turning kids and their parents away from Jesus. Like, what would Jesus want to have to do with these little ones? They're not going to advance our political aspirations. Get lost. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And it does. Remember, Jesus ends the chapter saying, but many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. So the way of the kingdom, Jesus said, will reverse how you have learned to evaluate those around you. Jesus brings kids who are on the margin of society right to the center and says, the kingdom of heaven, it's for these kind. You need to get that if you want to be kingdom people. They have no power or influence in our world, and you can't get those things from them, but they have joy and trust and lots of love. And so this challenges me. It asks, do you seek, it asks me this question, Dave, do you seek to move with the important, the powerful, the influential people of the world? And here's the, here's the kicker, so that you can be seen as important. And will you let that keep you from associating yourself, like really connecting with those who are broken and who can give you nothing in terms of power? My prayer this week was this, oh Lord, that you might keep me small like these kids. And never, would I never push them or anyone the world considers small? May I never push them away, but always move them to the center. And the last scene, the rich young ruler, this really drives it all home. He asks Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Notice that word get. It could be translated, as I read through it in the Greek text this week, possess. This guy is a getter. He's a possessor. He wants to do a good thing to get eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says. Why do you ask me about what's good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. This man thinks he can do to get from God. But notice, Jesus shifts the language from a good thing to the good one. He moves the discussion from things to a person. 
God himself, from getting or possessing eternity to entering life. See, this man has a lot, including what looks like a pretty good record of doing good things. But he knows he's missing something, and he is. So the man asks Jesus, which commands? Jesus starts listing a number of the Ten Commandments and a command from Leviticus 19.18 to love your neighbor as yourself. This man's confident. I've done it since I was a boy. But he knows there's still something amiss. What do I still lack? So he knows, he knows he's missing something, and he is. And so Jesus knows it too, and he puts his finger right on this man's kingdom issue. If you want to be perfect... Teleos means complete or mature. It's, it's the very thing Jesus says will be typical of his kingdom people in Matthew 5, 48. So this isn't like, a, oh, I'm not going to be perfect, so I shouldn't even aspire for that. No, Jesus says if you're a kingdom person, that's the work that the, kingdom, uh, the king will do in you. He'll make you complete. He'll make you mature. This is what he's doing. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. How will he respond? When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. It is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. This man's kingdom issue was that his possessions were possessing him. He wasn't actually keeping the commands as he thought he was. For the first command is this, have no other gods before me. And when Jesus makes this request of him, he is revealing that this man, in fact, does have a counterfeit God. He really doesn't love God. He wants something from God. And he goes away sad because he is unwilling to reorder his loves. His wealth is what stands in the way of loving God as first and best and to love others genuinely and generously. Please note, Jesus doesn't say, sell all that you have and you will earn eternal life. No way. He says it will mean treasure in heaven for this man. What this young man lacks is the loving leadership of God. He is not rightly related to God. That's the issue. He won't drop what he has in order to follow Jesus. He's possessed by his possessions. He's unwilling to let Jesus be his king because he wants his stuff more than he wants God. Tim Keller, as usual, puts it well. He says this, if you build your life on money, you'll be scared by what happens in the market. If you build your life on looks, you'll be scared by what's happening in the mirror. Whatever you build your life on, God says, if it's not me, it's fragile. He's right. It really is. But there's hope. Jesus offers us real security. It does mean something, though. It means shifting where you find your security off of relationship status or happiness seeking as your first and best or wealth or power. All of these are fragile. Jesus is not. Throughout this passage, Jesus is revealing false foundations. He challenges the religious controllers and those who would cheapen love down to happiness seeking. He challenges the hunger for power or wealth for being first and he invites us to a life of following him in his upside-down way. I mean, the kingdom issues, our kingdom, are issues of the heart. And that's what he drives at. Now, the answer is this. And the worship team can come forward as we close with this. 
through Jesus, what he does through his self-giving on the cross, he demonstrates his real love for us in a way that can restructure our hearts so that we begin to desire and want what God wants for us. And not only that, he gives us his Holy Spirit who enables us to actually begin to walk it out. Like you can do the things Jesus has asked you to do by his grace. And when we fall and fail, and that does happen sometimes, as we turn back to him, he forgives us. You see, it's by embracing his embrace of us, the embrace that is best pictured with two planks of wood and three nails, his love for you in that way, when that ultimately comes into our heart and, becomes, and he becomes the most important thing to us, it restructures our heart that we would want to live as he made us to. So let's stand. Let's sing and, and enjoy what God has done. For you, maybe it's just taking a moment of prayer in this song as well to say, I want, to restru- I want that restructuring of heart. Come and do that in me. Let's sing together.